Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly dose of politics, news and views from the north of England. The summer is nearly over. Apparently there has been one, even if it doesn't seem like it. And politics is starting to hot up again. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds, who writes a daily email newsletter called The Northern Agenda about the big political issues in the north of England. And with a general election now perhaps just a matter of months away and party conferences on the horizon, the debate over what's happened in the North and whether there's actually been any levelling up is set to get louder and louder, I suspect. My two guests later in the podcast are perfectly placed to cut through the noise and give us a sense of whether Boris Johnson's apparent vision to spread equality outside London and the South East is anywhere close to being realised. Andy Haldane is the CEO of the Royal Society of Arts think tank and as the head of the Leveling Up Task Force, one of the key figures in this area. And alongside him is Dr Annette Bramley of the N8 Research Partnership. And they've been telling me about the unique contribution the North can make to a range of challenges the UK faces and deliver on the promise of unlocking prosperity and closing regional divides. First, though, let's check in on some of the big stories in northern politics in the last few days with a good friend of the podcast, Liam Thorpe, political editor of the Liverpool Echo, who I'm sure listeners will be very happy to hear is preparing to be a dad. So I'm guessing grabbing all the sleep he can in the meantime. Uh, Liam, how are you? I am uh, on the edge of my seat, I would say. It's sort of at the stage now where I could could get a message at at any minute and um, everything could be about to happen. So, yeah, if I suddenly depart from the podcast, it's not being rude. It's because I've had a a text to get to the hospital. Well, that is quite understandable. I'm sure listeners will uh, be only uh, will will totally get on board with that. Now, let's start with the story that's been getting a lot of the headlines in uh, Merseyside in your part of the world, namely the government unveiling plans to give judges the power to force criminals to be present in the dock when they're sentenced for their crimes. What's what's the reason this is happening? A large part of it is the reaction to the horrendous behaviour of Thomas Cashman, who shot nine-year-old Olivia Platt-Corbell after chasing a drug dealer into her home in Liverpool. He was convicted and refused to come up to the dock when he was sentenced to a minimum of 42 years, you know, making the situation much worse for Olivia's uh, Olivia's bereaved family. And uh, Olivia's mother, Cheryl, has been campaigning fiercely for the law to be changed to stop this from happening. Liam, you've been following this story almost from the start. Just, what, just take us through what, what's the government announced and sort of what's been the reaction to it? Yeah, so so as you say, this is something that Cheryl Corbell, Olivia's mum, has been campaigning for ever since that day earlier this year when when Thomas Cashman refused to come in and face her and um, Olivia's other family members during his sentencing hearing. As, as you all know, Rob, during a sentencing hearing, um, families are able to read out what we call victim impact statements and look an offender in the eye and and tell them exactly what it is that they've done to them, what they have taken from them. It's a, you know, it's a very important part of the justice process. It's a very important part of the grieving process. And, and Olivia's family were denied that. Um, by Thomas Cashman's cowardice. And we've seen it in other very high-profile cases recently, including with Lucy Letby, who refused to come to her sentencing hearing to face the families of the babies that she murdered. So that helped to gather pace for this campaign that Olivia and others, including her her family's MP, Ian Byrne, um, Keir Starmer has been a big proponent of this change. And it it culminated in um, Cheryl Corbell meeting Rishi Sunak this week and him the Prime Minister committing to this new law. And it will basically apply in cases where 
The maximum sentence is life imprisonment. So this includes serious sexual or violent crimes like murder, rape, and grievous bodily harm with intent. Um, and basically, it will give judges new powers. So they'll, they'll have the discretion to use these new powers. And they can basically compel offenders to attend sentencing hearings using what the MOJ is calling reasonable force uh, in some cases. Um, although, obviously, judges will kind of make a decision using their discretion, um, including the health and safety of prison officers or whether it will be more a more distressing situation for the family. Um, so it's and also the other the other option is that more uh, time could be added on to a sentence as well if they don't do that. It's 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 not, and I'm sure we'll talk about this. It's not without its critics. This 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 idea. Um, some people think it's not that practical or it's harder to put into place. But I think from Cheryl Corbell's point of view, you know, this is about a a lasting legacy for her daughter. That she's created a, a really wonderful um, peace garden in in near the area where she lives in Olivia's name, and that's a kind of lasting tribute. But in terms of a, a lasting legacy for her, you know, a wonderful young daughter who is sadly no longer with us um, this is about making a change in in her name um, and she's asked Rishi Sunak if it can be called Olivia's Law if it can be named after Olivia so that other families don't have to face that that kind of final insult that her family faced yeah and I mean you put it really nicely in, in writing in the Liverpool Echo uh, this week you said that Cheryl has shown a superhuman level of fortitude that most of us could only dream of possessing to fight for a lasting legacy for little Olivia and hard to disagree with that really and I, I guess I was interested in the politics of it and also like you say the practicalities of it because I thought it's quite notable that as you say Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak have both come out in favour of a change in the law pretty much as soon as uh, Thomas Cashman refused to appear in the dock and there's obvious you know political advantages for them to do that, they want to be seen as tough on crime. I don't think they're going to get many votes by sticking up for the rights of the likes of Thomas Cashman. And uh, I saw that uh, Cheryl Corbell met with Rishi Sunak this week. She's also met with Keir Starmer. Pictures of them both have come out. I think Keir Starmer's only criticism of the change in law is that if he was in power, he would have done it even sooner, which shows that everyone, I guess, is on the same page. But in terms of the, you know, the actual practicalities of it. There was something I saw that was quite interesting from uh, Bryn Hughes, who is the father of Nicola Hughes, who I'm sure people will remember. About 10 years ago in Tameside in Greater Manchester, uh, was killed in the line of duty in a gun and grenade ambush, an absolutely horrendous case. But Bryn Hughes, as well as going through that ordeal, he is a prison officer, former prison officer. So he says he's seen it from both sides of the courtroom. And as a former prison officer who has actually restrained someone into court, he says it's very difficult. And, you know, some prisoners direct foul abuse towards the family. They turn their back on them. They, you know, they bite the prison guards. He he said, uh, there's a memorable quote from Bryn Hughes, if you're going to restrain them in court, is it going to involve a Hollywood-style Hannibal Lecter outfit, which is obviously a very you know, dramatic example of what could happen. And I guess the point is that, like you say, judges are going to have to think very carefully about the individual circumstances, aren't they? It's not going to be a blanket, necessarily, a blanket law that every offender in this situation is going to be dragged into court. There might well be a particular scenario where that is very much not the right thing to do. I think you're right. It's it's definitely going to be a case-by-case basis. And I think, you know, of, of all the people we would you know, rely on to use a level of discretion and, and judgment, it's it's a judge, right? It's in the name. Um, so we, we are kind of, you know, in each case, we'll be relying on 
on on their discretion, their judgment. You know, if for example, it's a six foot six, massively strong and muscular person, um, you're not you're probably not going to ask a you know prison guards to try and contend with that. It could be extremely difficult or dangerous. So I think it will be on a judge by, a case by case basis. Just to come back to your earlier point about the politics of it. Look, you know, I, I, we're very pleased here, certainly at the Liverpool Echo, that that Cheryl particularly um, has been able to win this campaign because it's so important to her and her family. From the politics side, you can see, as you say, you can see why both sides are keen on it. They both want to be very tough on crime. They both want to be the party of law and order. And also it's it's a it's a free policy, basically, isn't it? You don't have to you don't have to fund it really in, in any way. It's just some it's something that you can do quite quickly and change to put something into place. You know, I wasn't surprised to see some of the more right leaning newspapers today, like the Daily Mail and the Express, splashing on this. It's a big showy kind of, you know, law and order. So I think both Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak both wanted to do that. But, you know, hopefully if that means that there is a, a, a strong and lasting legacy for Olivia, then that's a that, that's a good thing. But yeah, as you say, I mean, I think Bryn Hughes has got a, a pretty unique take on this from both sides. And, and he makes some fair points that at, at certain times it will be almost impossible to do this. And if it is going to cause more distress, then it won't be done. Um, but there are other, other options at play that the judge can have. And I think just the just the notion of having those new powers is is something that particularly Olivia's family and others can can cling to and, and can be be proud of achieving. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just to move on to a, a more perhaps more day to day issue that uh, you know readers in uh, Liverpool, the Liverpool Echo listeners to this podcast will probably encounter on a on a regular basis. Fly tipping. Now, uh, Liverpool, obviously a very beautiful city, has lots of amazing landmarks. But I was reading this week that uh, a report that says the city has a dirty underbelly that is continuing to blight the suburban communities that surround the gleaming city centre. Fly, fly tipping, mattresses, shopping trolleys, bags of rubbish. There have been 19,000 fly tipping cases reported across Liverpool uh, in the 2021-22 financial year and only one single fixed penalty notice handed out during that time which makes Liverpool one of the one of the worst performers in terms of tackling this at least on that particular measure so I guess I'm interested as someone who covers politics in Liverpool on a date on a regular basis is, is this something that gets people really angry or are people just sort of resigned now to you know the streets around them being having all kinds of rubbish just streamed there and no one doing doing much about it no people are very angry about it i've um i've i've been reporting quite extensively recently on a, on a particular area of the city which it was flagged up in these uh in these stats as the worst in the city which is called wavertree and that is um where a, a large number of students live there's a lot of um, shared housing and, and kind of more those more transient communities that you see that perhaps you know, aren't as embedded and, and perhaps don't have as much um, capital in the area that they live. So you, and the, the thing with the students is now, you know, I don't always want to be student bashing because there's plenty of good students, but they tend to, what we see is they, when they move out at the end of the year, these shared houses, they are just dumping all their stuff in, in the street. We've had some videos of people just literally dumping it in the street outside other people's houses. It's extremely selfish. It's, it's reckless. And for the people who live there long-term, it's incredibly depressing. You know, they have to live around that. Um, the council, I should point out, in response to these figures, have said that they um, always appear higher because they include alleyways in their um, in their stats, which other councils don't. Um, and it's it's true that Liverpool's alleyways in those areas are, are pretty disgraceful at times. Um, and they also wanted to point out that they, 
figures for 21-22 don't include a lot of the kind of work that they've been doing to try and improve this situation, which, you know, there has been a fair amount of sort of campaigning on it. But judging from what we've seen recently, it's, it, it, there's a long, a long, long way to go. The final point I would make, and, and it, you referenced uh, my colleague David Humphreys' copy there about the, the sort of the, the underbelly, that I think there is a feeling in a lot of parts of Liverpool that the city centre is, you know, the kind of proud, the pride and joy of the city. And it's gets a lot of the attention from from the council and the authorities and you know you've been to Liverpool city centre Rob it's it's an amazing place amazing buildings it's had such redevelopment and there's so much to, you know so much to be proud of there and there is a feeling that out there in in the sort of suburbs people aren't getting as much attention and this is one of those run of the mill sort of everyday topics along with like bad parking that Liverpool it feels has has let slide um and the new council leader Liam Robinson when I spoke to him um, earlier in the summer, he said that these issues, littering, um, uh, dodgy landlords, which is part of the problem, bad parking, these kind of everyday issues are something that, yeah, he does believe have been allowed to let slide a bit and he wants to come down hard on. So we'll see what he's got in store. Yeah, I mean, continuing, I guess, a little bit, the theme from what we were just talking about with the change to the law, this issue has become politicised as well. Uh, Labour has accused the government of, of turning a blind eye to the problem of fly tipping because only 8% of reported incidents led to any form of punishment. But hitting back, the conser- there was a Conservative source, which I saw today, which said, we're taking no lectures from Labour when it comes to fly tipping, and that the two worst performing authorities in the country were Liverpool, as we mentioned, and Gateshead, who issued just two fixed penalty notices between them. They're both Labour-run councils. Uh, the thing about that is, well, that is totally true, that between them, Liverpool and Gateshead have issued only two fixed penalty notices, but there's 42 authorities who haven't issued any fixed penalty notices at all. So I think the, uh, I guess we're getting close to election season, uh, maybe the Conservatives get, playing and a bit massaging, fast. Massaging of the stats there. Yeah, playing a bit fast and loose with the uh, stats. And of the authorities that haven't issued any, it's a bit of a mixture. Some are some are Conservative, some are Lib Dem, some are, some are Labour. So I think uh, you know we're all going to have to be, as journalists, we're going to have to be on our game when uh, party spin doctors try and sneak out these uh, slightly misleading, misleading statements. Another story I thought we should discuss. You mentioned Liverpool Council coming under some scrutiny for fly-tipping. There's been a, a, a very tragic incident uh, in the last few days in Liverpool, which has put Liverpool Council under the spotlight for a different reason and it it really is a a horrible story two much loved grandparents uh elaine and philip marco they drove into a flooded area of liverpool a few days before their 54th wedding anniversary and um they both they both died in in flood water obviously we're in the early stages of the investigation as to exactly what happened and how this kind of happened because it seems extraordinary that such a thing could happen that people could die in flood water on, on on a street, uh, but it has happened. And so, what 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 are the sort of uh, in terms of the backlash or the scrutiny that the Liverpool Council is getting? Can you just tell us a bit about a bit about that? Yeah, certainly, Rob. Obviously, it's a a, a hugely shocking and, and traumatic incident that we we became aware of sort of as as it was happening over the weekend, and and our our reporting teams were were obviously doing their very best to kind of get to the bottom of what happened. And then once the news came out about. Elaine and Philip Marco um, and their identities were confirmed, you know, just huge amounts of of tributes for for a very well-known couple. They're really well-known in the Jewish community of South Liverpool. Um, and they're, 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 they've been um, neighbours, friends, family members, all paying their tributes to, um, you know, a, a lovely couple with um, 
a really um, a, a real influence on the city. And it's as you say, it's it's an almost unbelievable incident to have happened. It's quite near where I live, and whilst I've been aware of flooding there in the past, it, it's it's still really hard to get your head around the idea that this could happen in a quite a bit a busy street in a city you know but when we've gone back through our archives having spoken to people in the area who said that this has been a problem for a long time it's really serious and dangerous flooding the area where uh, this happened is it dips the road dips low beneath a railway bridge it's it can be very dark at night which we think is part of the problem because uh, the marco's car was was reported in there at uh, after nine o'clock on saturday and it, it's it's the Issues we think with drainage and heavy rainfall have caused, and we've seen some video footage of water cascading into this area. And then because of the bridge, it's forming a sort of tunnel type area. It's it's really hard to explain, but it's it's the videos is quite dramatic to show that the, the, how it was flooding. But looking back through our archives, based on what other people have told us, there's constant constant incidents like this. I mean, even just as early as July this year, a woman had to be rescued using a, a boat. To, to be rescued out of that area. So the question's being aimed at the councillor, why on earth has anything not been done sooner? Now, this is these are issues that we're all going to face more of in terms of uh, sort of the more extreme weather that we face as climate change continues to have its impact, coupled with sort of uh, decaying infrastructure. You know, you'll know from reporting on local councils, Rob, that things like road repairs are, are very scarce these days. Councils just can't afford to do them. We don't know exactly who who owns the infrastructure around the road, but that's one of the things being investigated. But I think one of the things that people are really asking is, as a sort of short-term measure, why more couldn't have been done to warn drivers about this type of flooding? There are some signs that are available where if water gets to a certain point, they, they start flushing with warning signs, telling drivers not to enter the area. As I say, this has been, it was very dark and they, they, the, the couple probably had no idea that, how deep the water had become. So that, I think, is where some of the investigation will look as well. And we're not hearing loads from the council at the moment. I understand that they are working, you know, with the, they're cooperating with the Merseyside Police investigation, which has been ordered by the coroner. Um, so there's probably not loads that they feel that they can say at the moment, but they're certainly under a lot of pressure here. This is a, a hugely tragic, you know, incident of, of national proportions um, and a lot of questions being asked of them right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure we'll hear a lot more on that story. Um, well, Liam, we've made it all the way through to the end of this part of the podcast and you haven't been called away yet. I think my phone's on silent, actually. Just check your phone. Yeah, it's OK. It's okay. Good. <laughs> right, fine. Well, just in case you do have to dash off in the next few minutes, I've got some uh, bit of parenting slash lifestyle advice for you. Uh, as a father of two myself, I don't feel I can offer you much advice, but I have got some good advice on... Uh, how to get more sleep because you know sleep may be an issue in the ne- in, in the coming days weeks or months erling harland the prolific manchester city uh striker he has been speaking in a uh, youtube interview uh with uh, logan paul about how he sleeps uh, his unusual techniques for getting better sleep apparently he wears blue light blocking glasses for three hours before going to bed he he sleeps with his mouth tape shut at night uh, and he says shutting out all the signals in the bedroom I think is really important doing a lot of things is not good but doing small things every day for a longer period 
really pays off. And apparently, if you tape your mouth, it maximizes breathing through the nostrils. And you know, if you don't expose yourself to blue light, that can you know, mean you're not seeing these electronic devices, which can affect affect your sleep. So uh, I, I don't know if that's going to prove useful useful to you. So tape over your mouth and no no blue light devices before bed. That might that might get you through the uh, the tricky months that lie ahead. I think he's been talking to my wife because she's always complaining that I've always got my my phone on at night and that I snore. And his advice would probably solve maybe solve both of these instances. I think the the problem is once she t- started taping my mouth up at night, she'd want it to stay on during the day as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, maybe if you follow this advice, you'll not only get better sleep, but you'll start banging in thirty or forty goals a season for the Premier League football club. I think you've been talking to my uh, my echo mates, watching me play five aside, and know I need a little bit of finishing practice. <laughs> well, couldn't we all? Um, Liam, it's been great to have you on, and wish you all the very best with uh, with, with with fatherhood. Thank you, thank you, Rob. Take care. Now, anyone who listens to this podcast or reads the Northern Agenda newsletter won't need telling about the incredible strengths the North and its 15 million population boast. But elsewhere in the country and down in the corridors of power in London, it seems there's still more to do to tell people who matter what our region can do to tackle the many challenges our country faces. In the next few weeks, a series of public events will be held to address just this issue, featuring speakers who've dedicated themselves to the issue of unlocking prosperity and closing regional divides. Up North, Innovative Thinking from the North to Unlock a More Prosperous Future for All will be hosted by members of the N8 group of universities this autumn and winter. So what are they hoping to achieve? Let's find out from two of the senior figures behind this initiative. One is Dr. Annette Bramley, the N8 Research Partnership, a collaboration between the eight most research-intensive universities in the north of England. The other is Andy Haldane, Chief Executive Officer at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, a think tank committed to finding practical solutions to social challenges. Andy is a former Chief Economist at the Bank of England, who's been at the heart of the levelling up agenda after being appointed in 2021 by Michael Gove to head up the task force dedicated to the issue, who's born in Sunderland and educated in West Yorkshire. So Annette and Andy, it's uh, a pleasure to have you both on our on our podcast today. Andy, I'll start with you. I, I was reading an interesting quote from you to promote this event, and you said, too often the needs of the North of England are not given a fair hearing, and this series is part of an attempt to remedy that. Can you just elaborate on that a bit? Can it, can it really be that with everything we've heard from various prime ministers in the last few years, that Northern England is still having to make the case to people in power of its importance and the importance of its needs being addressed and what it can offer? I fear so, Rob. Yeah, I think um, there's definitely been progress uh, in policy discussions and deliberations uh, around yeah, the world beyond London, I suppose. It's not just a northern thing. Uh, I think the same could be said uh, of other parts of England and certainly the same could be said uh, of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland too, that the, the focus of policy attention in Whitehall uh, has not in the past been sufficiently uh, on all four corners of the UK. And to an extent, that still remains true despite progress, as I say, over the last two, three, four years. I think... 
what we have seen that has changed and very much for the better, of course, is more power being devolved and decentralized away from Whitehall towards uh, local leaders, including England, the, the emergent uh, metro mayors. That is helping. That is helping crystallize the policy conversation about other parts of the UK. But I still think we've got some distance to travel before the full sights and focus and monies uh, of UK PLC are spread evenly across the UK, to say nothing of the attention uh, the different parts of the UK uh, get. And that's why initiatives like this, Rob, are so important in providing something of a spotlight on what I know and what everyone on this call knows uh, are a fantastic set of innovative and entrepreneurial activities across all four corners of the UK, which are heralded and celebrated and supported still uh, too little. And that needs to change. Just for maybe people who are listening who maybe don't know all these different things, I mean, can, can you just give, an, give us an example of something that you, something that's happening in the North or, uh, you know, a, a great regional strength that we need to be making more of or that national policymakers aren't, you know, sufficiently utilising to its full to its full full benefit. Well, let me give you an example from close to where I grew up. You mentioned I was born in Sunderland, um, which is a place that has not done well for the for the for the whole of my life. Actually, it's been stuck or perhaps even retreating. Um, I mean, there um, the signs there of a real stirring. Uh, there are plans to take the waterfront along the weir there, which is currently largely open space, and turn it into a a creative industries uh, corridor, which would be transformative for how people think about uh, a city such as Sunderland, uh, a struggling city such as Sunderland. That will require, you know, combining the forces of, of local government business, anchor institutions uh, like the university uh, in Sunderland, together with monies from central government and monies from outside private agencies. But were that to happen, just think about the way that could shift the narrative about a place uh, like Sunderland, my, the place of my birth. And there's just the, the faintest stirrings there, Rob, of something transformative Happen. And from my time you know, traveling around, as I did when I was at the Bank of England, I spent a lot of time basically traveling around the four corners of the UK, you know, harvesting stories, really, about how economies were doing. I could spot a mile off places uh, doing well and places that were stuck in the mud. And the difference was often the story they told about themselves. The places forging ahead were looking forwards and upwards. And the places stuck in the mud uh, told stories that were backward looking and looking downwards. And I just feel in a number of places now, Sunderland is one, Bradford would be another. They are on the cusp of looking forwards and upwards with real momentum, with real, a really compelling narrative of how, how Sunderland could be, how Bradford uh, could be. And the role of us 
on this call, the role of local government, the role of central government, is to get behind that narrative, to nurture it, not just with monies, but with communications. And indeed, the Hull Up North initiative is about nurturing that narrative across different parts of the North. And at some of the topics on the agenda of the Up North events, uh, uh, topics like digital access and skills, cultural regeneration, uh, the green economy. I mean, are there any particular areas that you're excited about talking about that I guess perhaps don't get enough of a hearing in, in this debate at the moment? Yeah, I, I mean, all of the ones that, that you mentioned, there's, there's, there's one in particular around, as you say, cultural regeneration, which is exciting. There's one in, about coastal communities, which is you know, going to be really interesting. And as, as Andy already alluded to, you know, they're, they're some of the, the communities which have been told some of these more negative narratives, but with Eden Morecambe, uh, uh, being developed uh, in the northwest, for example. Again, I think there's you know a really strong story to tell there. But the one that I'm really excited about, in particular, I suppose naturally, given my role working with the universities, is one that's going to happen in Sheffield in uh, late November, which is about the relationship with universities and uh, innovation-led growth and commercialization. Uh, and and we've lined up a fantastic series of. Uh, panel discussions which are going to bring together a real mix of national politicians, local business people, um, spin-out companies, um, investment, and it's going to look at business growth and the role of universities and dive deep into South Yorkshire as a case study. And, you know, one of the things that the listeners to this podcast will probably be aware is that South Yorkshire was chosen as the first of the investment zones um, by their government. And so this is a real fantastic opportunity for people, because these are going to be open events, they're free events to attend, to, to engage with this um, uh, initiative, but also and to hear how it's going to um, be developed, but also to feed in their, their perspectives and to make these ideas better and to really be able to engage in a way which um, is different to usual. That's really interesting. And I mean, are there any particular, uh, you mentioned, you know, Sheffield being the site of the first investment uh, investment zone. There's a lot of other things going on around the north. Are there any, any other particular projects you're really excited about that you think people maybe ought to know about, but but don't so much? Well, I think there's, uh, well, the first event, I mean, I, I could reflect on the first event in the series, which has actually already taken place at York, which was part of the York Festival of Ideas and was about reimagining cities and how businesses, uh, social enterprise, education and policymakers can work together and differently to reimagine more sustainable uh, and community empowered cities. Um, and we will, you know, we'll be putting these resources on our website. So people that weren't able to engage in person with the, you know, the York event. And which was absolutely brilliant, I have to say, um, can can you know kind of catch up, but also engage with these ideas um, that are coming out. I, I think one that's coming up in Liverpool, uh, aligned with the Labour Party conference, which you know we know is taking place there uh, next month, is is around um, levelling up and digital uh, the digital divide, and we know how important that is, particularly when we think about. Uh, education and access to services but as you uh, again as Andy sort of alluded to there's you know there's enormous opportunities in kind of creative industries and digital and how that's going to 
uh, enable us to transform. So, um, yeah, that, some of that, those start, those debates are really vibrant and and really provide um, opportunities for the great inner ideas and thinking that's taking place in the region to really get a higher profile. Um, and, and, and you know, we have great ideas. We have great change makers and thinkers in the north that could really bring their ideas and put them in a in a much bigger uh, have a much bigger profile so that they can be picked up by national policymakers you know and, and and implemented in the north but as Andy says you know beyond the north as well in in other parts of the UK and, and these these people don't always get the chance to be on these big stages and definitely working with the RSA uh, on this exciting up north initiative is to help us do that. I think it's a really interesting point that Andy made uh, to start with, which is that, you know, a lot of this comes down to the narrative that places tell about themselves. I guess quite a lot of the focus in the levelling up discussion is what what is central government doing about this? What money is Whitehall putting in? What powers are they handing over to local areas, etc.? And obviously your, your focus is what can universities do? What can businesses do? But would you agree that it does come down to some extent about how local areas see themselves and sort of what what they can do for themselves. It all has to stem from that. And, you know, the, the role of universities and the private sector and, and so forth is to sort of uh, help make those dreams a reality, as it were. So I think this is this this kind of um, the, the, this initiative that up north is really about showing the positive thinking and the potential of the north and that we're not there you know, asking for just kind of handouts, but we have ideas coming from our own communities, our own businesses that will really help with the challenges that are faced by our communities. And it's it's about engaging that broader spectrum and making these ideas even better so that they can be picked up and run with. I think it's so important that, that we engage more broadly with communities as universities in order to in order to make sure that we have initiatives and um, ideas that really can gain traction and, and bring change quickly. Andy, the in terms of levelling up as a broader uh, agenda, obviously we've got a levelling up white paper. We've got a uh, government department with the the, the words levelling up uh, in it. But yet we we hear a lot from opposition politicians. And in fact, uh, Nadine Dorries, in her scathing letter to the Prime Minister last week, made this point also that levelling up as an agenda uh, is dead. You're, you're, you're very close to all the major, uh, a lot of the major players in this. You've played a role in you know, drafting some of these policies and ideas. I mean, is there, is there some truth to that, that amid everything else that's going on, all the many manifold challenges that the country faces, levelling up has fallen somewhat down the government's agenda? Uh, I'd say yes and no. Classic economist answer there, Rob, for you. I mean, here's, here's the yes part that I think for, for this government, you know, uh, at a time when, when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, it was his priority number one. They always said it was his priority number one. And I think the same could not be said uh, of uh, the current government. Uh, I mean, the no part, though, is that, you know, is levelling up still being given momentum and priority by this government. Yes, it is. Uh, for what it's worth, I chair the uh, Leveling Up Advisory Council for the government, sort of overseeing their efforts. 
So I can speak to that with a some degree of uh, proximity uh, and authority, I hope. But I think as encouragingly, on the other side of the political aisle, uh, we have seen uh, the Labour Party, the opposition party, row in very strongly behind this uh, agenda um, with its own proposals coming on stream, not least for devolution through Gordon Brown's report on that. And I would say there is something, something uh, of a competition for virtue on levelling up now happening between the two main parties. It's a competition that I very much welcome. Uh, it's a competition I hope that picks up momentum in the run-up to a uh, general election. I think that's likely, uh, given uh, the battle for votes in the so-called red wall uh, seats. I think there is a degree of momentum now uh, behind devolution and decentralization that means that whatever happens uh, in Westminster, uh, momentum will be carried forward at the local level, which is the right place for it to be carried forward right now. We're in a situation where there's much more stability and durability in regional politics than there is in national politics. And many of the great things I see happening right now, and the reason for optimism around levelling up, is because I see uh, mayors and local leaders seizing the initiative, enabled and empowered, and just getting on with it. I think that's exactly as it should be uh, and ought to be. So I think it's a mixed scorecard, but I wouldn't agree that levelling up is somehow uh, dead. Um, I think it still has lots of residual energy. Uh, I think there's a lot still happening, often behind the scenes, which is often, by the way, the best place for policy to take place, uh, not through political sound bites. Uh, and locally, you know, um, uh, and I think there's a chance of it being given even greater giddy up uh, the other side of a, a general election. So I am quietly quite confident that this hasn't been lost. And in truth, it can't be lost, Rob. You know, it's the right thing to do. We want to grow our country, to grow our economy. There's only one way to do that, and that's from the bottom up. So whether your aim is shrinking spatial disparities or just growing the economy in total, it ticks both boxes to say nothing about the benefits this brings uh, to local uh, regeneration and well-being, so I'm I'm um, I'm quietly optimistic. I think there are good grounds uh, for optimism. It's good that the likes of Nadine Doris, who's proud of Liverpudlian and uh, a big supporter of the North, um, raises these points. It's good uh, that we have those. Um, nudging this on and nudging our political classes into keeping on the case. And that's our role too. And that's the role of this, of this initiative as well. The Up North initiative is about keeping this on people's radar and talking about all the good stuff that is already happening and hopefully encouraging a bit more of it. And you mentioned the uh, the levelling up advisory council. So you, you are chair of, of that, which I think was set up last year. Obviously, as I mentioned, you, you're also heading up the Leveling up task force, which was I think set up the previous year. I, I it occurs to me that some people listening to this might not be totally clear about what these two those two different bodies do and their different roles. I, I I'm perhaps not entirely 
100% sure myself. Can you just explain how the Leveling Up Task Force and the Leveling Up Advisory Council, what, 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 what their roles are and sort of what they've, what they've achieved so far? Yeah, you're not alone in that, Rob. Uh, have a go. Um, so um, but the task force is essentially, a, a, as task forces are, uh, was set up as a, as a temporary measure, effectively to, to term the ideas and aspirations and ambitions of the then Prime Minister uh, and the Secretary of State, Michael Gove, uh, into a practical reality in the form of the levelling up white paper. So I, I, was, I, was, um, I was drafted in for six months to do the drafting uh, on that levelling up white paper, and that was the purpose of the task force to support uh, me and Michael Gove in, in doing that. Um, the advisory council was a creature set up, um, proposed in the white paper, and then uh, now being supported in practice to oversee, if you like, the implementation of the recommendations in that white paper. Uh, and this is a group of independent outside experts, um, similar in spirit, if you like, to the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility on the fiscal side or the Committee on Climate Change on All Matters Green, uh, provided, uh, providing an independent expert arm's length view on how it's all going uh, and hopefully serving as a critical friend to, to nurture many and various levelling up initiatives. And that's what we are now that's what we are now doing. That's what we are now about. Uh, underpinning that are the 12 missions defined in the, in the white paper, which cover basically all the thematic issues covered in the Up North series. And one of the reasons I think it's such a fantastic series is precisely because it recognises that there isn't one fixed ingredient for regeneration success. You need to build out the skills side you need to build out the innovation side. You need to build out the cultural offering. It's that mixed recipe of raw ingredients that's essential for success. They're, in, they're set out in the 12 missions. And one of the roles of the advisory council is to ensure the government's feet is kept to the flame when it comes to making good uh, on those uh, 12 missions. So should we expect a report of some kind from the advisory council? Is that your plan to produce a sort of public-facing analysis of how it's all of how it's all going? So as part of the um, leveling up and regeneration bill, which is currently wending its way through the two houses of parliament, it'll probably achieve royal assent. Fingers crossed with a, with a fair wind in the autumn. That imposes a, a statutory requirement on government to report annually on progress against those twelve missions, Rob. Uh, that's a report produced by government, but which will be subject to external scrutiny and certainly some scrutiny from the Leveling Up Advisory Council. Uh, so yes, part of this will be regular transparent reporting on progress, and us, providing, us and others providing some outside scrutiny of that progress report. And uh, Andy sounds optimistic broadly about uh, where, 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 this, where this is going. I mean, are you, do you share his optimism? And I guess we're coming into a uh, you know the the, the run up to a, a general election, where as as Andy says, this this issue is going to be high on the agenda. But it occurs to me that perhaps that will put more of an emphasis on sort of the short term twenty million here for a new leisure centre type initiatives that can be more easily put onto a an election leaflet, and perhaps less emphasis on tackling the big structural issues that are holding the north back. And then who knows what's going to happen with the next 
with the next government. I mean, with that all being the case and things being in in in, in a little bit of flux for political reasons, are you are you are you optimistic? Well, yeah, I am optimistic. I think part of the role of universities uh, as anchor institutions in our places is that they're able to take the longer term view and they're not political, um, but that they can come up with ideas um, uh, and evidence-based solutions for policies across the political spectrum, um, which can impact um, now, but, but also in the future. And if I reflect on the levelling up white paper, one of the um, one of the things that came out of it, which was going to directly impact on universities in the north of England, is that there's going to be a, a an increase in the proportion of uh, funding allocated by the National Funding Agency UK Research and Innovation, and um, to help rebalance um, some of the the differences geographically um, in the way that that funding is has been allocated historically, which will bring, again, more opportunities for innovation, um, both in universities, but in businesses right across the region. And and that is, you know, a longer term endeavour that goes beyond um, election uh, timescales, by and large, um, and and will really lay the groundwork uh, for us to be able to develop those solutions and really bring new products and services to market, to support businesses in their net zero transitions, um, to provide skills and training um, for, for these new kind of highly skilled jobs in the green economy, which you know the North can really capitalise upon over the next 5, 10, 15 years, is going to be a massive expansion there. And that's a really positive opportunity that we need to kind of grab with both hands. Well, that's a great optimistic note uh, to end on I'll, I'll finish by plugging one of the events that you, you mentioned so it's uh, to coincide with the Labour Party conference in Liverpool it's on Monday the 9th of October uh, from 5 to 6.30 uh, p.m at the Hilton Liverpool City Centre Hotel and if you want to find out more about all the many different events there's quite a few that you can go to uh, you go to the website www.n8research.com dot org dot uk forward slash up north and uh, i hope to see a few of you there because it sounds like a great event so uh, andy haldane and annette bramley thank you so much for speaking to me today thank you for listening to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at the northern it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.